This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, welcome to the podcast. In this session, we will cover pelvic inflammatory disease. Pelvic inflammatory disease, or PID, is a polymicrobial infection of the upper genital tract that primarily infects young, sexually active women. Now, there are 750,000 cases of PID each year in the United States, mainly in women 15 to 29 years of age. Approximately 10 to 20% of women with chlamydial or gonorrheal infections may develop PID if not treated. Women with PID have a 20% chance of developing infertility from tubal scarring, a 9% chance of having an ectopic pregnancy, and an 18% chance of developing chronic pelvic pain. In this session, we will cover the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention updated PID guidelines, including diagnosis and treatment. The pathophysiology of PID involves transcervical ascension of bacteria from the cervix into the endometrium, through the salpinx, and into the peritoneal cavity, causing endometritis, salpingitis, tubal ovarian abscess, and pelvic peritonitis. Less commonly includes lymphatic spread of infection and hematogenous routes. Hematogenous routes of infection leading to PID can explain how tuberculosis can infect the pelvic viscera, although this is rare. The diagnosis of PID is based primarily on clinical evaluation. Now, because of the potential for significant consequences if treatment is delayed, healthcare providers should treat on the basis of clinical judgment without waiting for confirmation from lab or imaging tests. Most importantly, healthcare providers must consider PID in the differential in women 15 to 44 years of age who present with lower abdominal or pelvic pain and cervical motion or pelvic tenderness, even if these symptoms are mild. However, there is no single symptom, physical finding, or lab test that is sensitive or specific enough to definitively diagnose PID. The clinical diagnosis alone is about 88% sensitive and 50% specific. Now, when compared with laparoscopy, clinical diagnosis of PID in symptomatic patients has a positive predictive value of 65 to 90%, and this depends on risk factors within the population being studied. Okay, so let's review this once again, because that's an important clinical pearl. According to the CDC, the diagnosis of PID is based on clinical criteria found at physical exam, and only one or more of three minimal criteria are required for the diagnosis either cervical motion tenderness or uterine tenderness or adnexal tenderness. Remember, you only need one of those three to make a presumptive diagnosis of PID. To increase the specificity of diagnosis, look for one of the following, an oral temperature of greater than 101, abnormal cervical or vaginal mucopurulent discharge, 
the presence of abundant numbers of white blood cells on saline microscopy of vaginal fluid, an elevated ESR or an elevated C-reactive protein, or lab documentation of cervical infection with either gonorrhea, chlamydia, or trichomonas. Now, the following test results are the most specific criteria for diagnosing PID endometrial biopsy with histopathological evidence of endometritis or transvaginal ultrasound or MRI techniques showing thickened fluid-filled tubes with or without free pelvic fluid or the presence of tubo-ovarian complex. Now, laparoscopic abnormalities consistent with PID is the gold standard, but obviously laparoscopy is also the most invasive of the diagnostic tests. Risk factors for PID include age younger than 25 years, young age at first sexual encounter, specifically younger than 15, use of non-barrier contraception, especially IUD or oral contraceptives, new or multiple or other symptomatic sexual partners, a history of PID or sexually transmitted infection, or recent IUD insertion defined as less than three weeks ago. Now, black women may be at higher risk of PID, although there are inconsistencies among the data. Vaginal douching is also a known risk factor for development of PID. Now, typically, women will present with some degree of lower abdominal or pelvic pain, although it may be mild. Other symptoms may include new or abnormal vaginal discharge, fever or chills, cramping, dyspareunia, dysuria, and abnormal or postcoital bleeding. Some women can also have low back pain, nausea, and vomiting. Now, it's less common for women to have no symptoms or atypical symptoms like right upper quadrant pain from perihepatitis. Remember, that's the Fitzhugh-Curtis syndrome. At-risk women who present with pelvic or lower abdominal pain and have no other identified etiology for their pain should be presumed to have PID if they have either cervical motion tenderness, uterine tenderness, or atnexal tenderness. Okay, when we come back, let's jump straight into treatment based on the CDC regimens. Okay, regarding treatment, data comparing the effectiveness of different treatment regimens are limited. Guidelines are updated by the CDC to reflect resistance patterns and additional organisms that are implicated in these types of infections. Now, initially, physicians should determine whether the patient requires inpatient or outpatient management. According to the CDC, here are the suggested criteria for hospitalization of patients with pelvic inflammatory disease inability to follow or tolerate an outpatient oral medication regimen, no clinical response to oral antimicrobial therapy, if they're pregnant, severe illness, nausea and vomiting, or high fever defined as greater than or equal to 101, if surgical emergencies like appendicitis cannot be effectively ruled out, or the presence of tubal ovarian abscess. Again, this list includes the suggested criteria from the CDC for initial hospitalization for patients with a presumptive diagnosis of PID. According to the CDC, the two regimens for parenteral treatment for inpatient PID therapy are regimen A and regimen B. Regimen A is cefotitan, 2 grams IV every 12 hours, or cefoxetin, 2 grams IV every 6 hours, both with 
oral or IV doxycycline. Regimen B is clindamycin at 900 milligrams IV Q8 plus IV gentamicin with a 2 milligram per kilo loading dose and a maintenance dose of 1.5 milligrams per kilo every 8 hours. As an alternative regimen, Unison, which is ampicillin sulbactam, 3 grams IV every 6 hours, can be given in addition to doxycycline. Again, that can be done either oral or through IV. Okay, now a quick word about using doxycycline. Because of the pain associated with intravenous infusion, doxycycline should be administered orally when possible. Actually, oral and IV administration of doxycycline have similar bioavailability. When using the parenteral cefotitan or cefoxetin regimens, oral therapy with doxycycline 100 milligrams twice daily can be used 24 to 48 hours after clinical improvement to complete the 14 days of therapy. Now for the clindamycin gentamicin regimen, oral therapy with clindamycin 450 milligrams four times daily or doxycycline at 100 milligrams twice daily can be used to complete again a 14 day course of therapy. However, when tubo ovarian abscess is present, clindamycin or metronidazole should be used to complete at least 40 days of therapy with doxycycline to provide more effective anaerobic coverage than just doxycycline alone. All right, now before we leave this discussion about IV parenteral antibiotics for inpatient use. A quick word about anaerobic coverage. Anaerobic microorganisms found in patients with PID may include anaerobic vaginal and cervical flora, like those related to bacterial vaginosis, like Gardnerella vaginalis. That's why the CDC recommends cefotitan or cefoxetin, because both of these cephalosporins do cover anaerobic bacteria. All right, now in women who can tolerate an outpatient regimen, intramuscular and oral therapy can be considered for women with mild to moderate acute PID because the clinical outcomes among women treated with these regimens are similar to those treated with intravenous therapy. Now for those who do not respond to this IM and oral therapy regimen within 72 hours should be reevaluated to confirm the diagnosis and to consider intravenous therapy. These are the patients Again, these non-responders who may require recollection of labs, including re-imaging, to make sure no new pelvic pathology has presented. The recommended regimens are as follows. Okay, according to the CDC, the oral and IM regimen for outpatient use includes ceftriaxone, 250 milligrams IM in a single dose, plus oral doxycycline with or without flagyl metronidazole, both oral antibiotics, for 14 days. Now, the other regimen includes cefoxetin, 2 grams IM, plus probenicid, 1 gram orally, at the time of the cefoxetin injection, plus oral doxycycline with or without oral metronidazole, again for 14 days of therapy. Other parenteral third-generation cephalosporins include ceftazoxime, plus doxycycline with or without flagell, again, twice a day for 14 days. All right, when we come back, let's talk about the rare occurrence of PID after IUD insertion.
IUDs are one of the most effective types of contraceptive methods. Copper-containing and levonorgestrel-releasing IUDs are available for use in the U.S. The risk for PID associated with IUD use is primarily confined to the first three weeks after insertion. Now, if an IUD user receives a diagnosis of PID, the IUD does not need to be removed. However, the woman should receive treatment according to the recommendations we just discussed and should have close clinical follow-up. If no clinical improvement occurs within 48 to 72 hours after the initiation of treatment, then healthcare providers should consider removing the IUD. A systematic review of evidence found that treatment outcomes did not generally differ between women with PID who retained the IUD and those who had it removed. Now, these studies primarily included women using copper or other non-hormonal IUDs. No studies are available regarding the treatment outcomes in women using the levonorgestrel-releasing IUD, but the hypothesis is that it should be the same as for the copper IUD. Lastly, as we wrap up this podcast, remember that many episodes of PID actually go unrecognized. Although some cases are asymptomatic, others are not diagnosed because the patient or the healthcare provider fails to recognize the implications of mild or nonspecific symptoms or signs like abnormal bleeding, dyspareunia, and vaginal discharge. Even women with mild or asymptomatic PID can be at risk for ectopic pregnancy, infertility, and chronic pelvic pain as sequelae. So because of the difficulty of diagnosis and the potential for damage to the reproductive health of women, all healthcare providers should maintain a low threshold for the diagnosis of PID, especially in young reproductive age women. Well, that wraps up our quick session on PID, reviewing the CDC criteria. We'll see you next time.